This is 100 Things I'll Miss When I'm Dead. I'm Michael Colville Anderson. Welcome to my happy place. My podcast where I self-medicate against my constant overthinking and anxiety about my own mortality with tiny happy pills of positivity and reflection. I realized this morning that this will be the last episode of this podcast in 2020. Like everyone else on the planet, I'm looking forward to seeing the back end of this year, but I will continue the podcast into 2021. Once again, I just want to say thank you to everyone who has been buying me a coffee over at buymeacoffee.com slash Michael, M-I-K-A-E-L. It's different with podcasts compared to producing content on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or tweeting things out on Twitter. People like, they comment, you get feedback about whatever it is you're banging on about. With this podcast, I have the stats, how many people are downloading the episodes. But that whole buymeacoffee.com thing is really cool, simply because I know that there are listeners out there. Normally when somebody buys me a coffee, I get a push on an app on my phone. But it was also this morning that I realized that people are leaving comments when they buy me a coffee. I hadn't seen that before, so I've been scrolling through them and reading all of the kind, encouraging words. Thank you so much for that. It is so great to hear your reactions to this podcast. And if you're listening to this podcast on iTunes, I've been looking into the importance of people leaving ratings. And apparently, it is quite a thing. So if you have the time and inclination to slap some shiny stars on this podcast on iTunes, that would be much appreciated. Leave a review as well. It's another way for me to hear what you think about the podcast. Feedback is awesome. Let's get to it. Last episode, 2020. Episode 7. Number 36, Hangovers. There's an expression in Danish that goes like this. There is nothing that is so bad that it isn't good for something. So I, like you, possess absolutely no affection whatsoever for the physical state of a hangover. But I've been able to spin it positively. It was never a conscious decision where I said, I'm going to make the most out of this dreadful condition. Nah, I just learned to recognize a hangover's effect on me and capitalize on it. I've never really put any effort into categorizing the different kinds of hangovers as you might expect I would given my habit of making spreadsheets for everything. But if I think about it while sitting here, and since I take this podcast very seriously, I wrote this with a hangover and I'm recording it at a later time with another one, It seems like there are three different kinds. There's the light version, where you just feel a bit crappy. On the other end of the spectrum, there is the near-death experience hangover, where you lie there, immovable. In between those two are the -the middle-of-the-road, average, yucky hangovers, with varying intensities. Speaking from personal experience, anyway, it might be different for you. Hangovers are the toxic sewage after the consumption of not only alcohol, but also jovial conversation, piss-taking, and high spirits shared with people you like. Hopefully, anyway. They're self-inflicted, so it's really hard to feel sorry for anyone experiencing it. Now, of course, when you're drinking alcohol, you experience the erosion of your filters and any reservedness you might have. It's called alcohol myopia. Drinking alcohol increases your baseline tendencies. What happens to me when I have a hangover is, in a way the same thing. I'm stripped of any protective bubble. I am exposed to the emotional elements. I remember reading about how humans have a microscopic layer of air covering our skin at any time, 
And when it's really windy, for example, you experience irritation because the wind, in effect, is blowing that layer of air away and rubbing you raw like a dry, brittle loofah sponge. Places that have seasonal winds, like the French Mistral or the Italian Scirocco winds, see higher levels of crime during those windy periods. So that's how I feel when I have a hangover, at the mercy of the stormy emotional elements. I feel like my nerves are on the outside of my body. The built-in check and balance system in my brain that is usually successful at keeping me somewhat emotionally stable is closed for the day. So for many years, I have tried to get the most out of this situation. You know what I do? I go to art or photo exhibitions as a rule. It's as though when I'm standing in front of a photograph or a painting or installation in a hungover state, I absorb it much more effectively. My in-house art snob and my personal taste are silenced. Nobody is listening to them. I have a direct line to the artist and their work. I will spend much longer staring at a piece than I normally would. Even artwork that I know I wouldn't normally like. I just seem to feel more. One example is the last time I visited MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art, in New York. Together with my girlfriend at the time, we were hurrying just a little bit through the amazing collection because closing time was approaching. Generally, I would never recommend doing that at MoMA. It is a full-day, full-sensory experience. I hadn't been there for many years, and there were specific paintings that I just had to see. And my girlfriend had her list as well. And then there were the paintings that we wanted to show each other. We were busy. I walked into one large room, and along the wall, on the left, was a huge painting in three panels. Claude Monet's Reflections of Clouds on the Water Lily Pond. I have never been a big fan of Monet's work, but for some reason, that painting smacked me in the face. I never knew that Monet painted such large canvases. I stopped in my tracks and looked at it and got so emotional that tears rolled down my face. Somewhere beneath the surface, there was an irritation that I was crying at a painting by that water lily dude. Really? Him? But it took second place to the raw hangover experience. So if you ever see me at an exhibition, the odds are that I had a good time the night before. I didn't make it to an exhibition today. But then again, creating art in this state is closely related to experiencing art while fragile. A hangover essentially dulls my overthinking about everything which is a kind of freedom. As an extension of this, something else happens to me. Something that is a little bit weird. I have Googled this, and I'm amazed that there is so little information about it, and so little scientific research on the topic. The only articles I can find seem to be on pop-smart lifestyle websites. At this point in the podcast series, I'm no longer concerned with oversharing. It's a bit too late for that now. So, in a nutshell, I get really horny when I have a hangover. I'll spare you the specific details of how that works exactly. Don't worry. But what I have been able to find on Google would indicate that while it's not normal for everyone, I am not alone. There are other people out there. Maybe we should start a dating app for the people who experience the same thing and team up with a junk food provider as a sponsor. But yeah, gone is my overthinking and my filters and what is left is the hangover version of alcohol myopia leaving me to deal with my baseline tendencies. So if you ever see me at an exhibition, now you know that too. Great. A hangover is also a personal bottoming out, and there's only one way to go, and that is up, towards recovery and a return to the normal physical and mental state. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have a frozen pizza with my name on it, and it's time to fire up Netflix. 
Number 37, Living Life Like a French Film. To be completely honest, I have really no specific definition of what this means. Even if it sounds really cool, and it's been my unofficial motto for most of my adult life. I have spent countless hours in cinemas watching both Hollywood productions and arthouse films in foreign languages. The cinema has always been my temple. And in that vast repertoire, French films figure prominently. More specifically, films that were made between 1950 and 1974. I'm not exactly sure why, and I've stopped trying to figure it out. I just know that they have appealed to me and have had an influence on my life. There was always something about the French lifestyle that spoke to me, and watching the films of the French New Wave, as well as many others, resonated in my young mind and continues to do so today. The French don't have a patent on the best way to live a life, that's for certain, but it triggered something in me. As has been the case with many of the segments in this podcast, I find myself thinking and analyzing and wondering, but I'm going to leave this one alone. If you've never seen many old French films, it won't mean much to you. If you've seen many of them, you might end up with a different definition and conclusion. I'm not entirely sure that I live up to this motto every single day of my life, but I do my best. After reading through the years about various famous writers or personalities and what mottos they used to guide themselves through life, I guess at some point I wanted one too. Living life as a French film is not exclusively sitting in small cafes, sipping a coffee before moving on to pastis and then wine, all while having an argument with a beautiful person about philosophy, before ordering a late dinner and then going home to make love. Although I kind of wish it was exactly that every single day, but that doesn't seem to be a sustainable business model. I just think it's a fine goal. I suppose this life motto is more of a feeling, a mood, a je ne sais quoi. Later in life, this motto helped me define something else. A good friend of mine and I were talking about dating and relationships and how we should be better wingmen for each other when we're out together. She asked me a question that I had heard before but had never really been able to answer. What's your type? I know that some people have a very specific type while others work with a broader spectrum. I also know that I have always been incredibly picky and could compile a list of the things I look for, but it would end up being a bit long. And then it hit me in that conversation with my friend. My type? Somebody who resembles a character in a French film. And not a specific film or character, but definitely one between 1950 and 1974. Again, I don't have a lot of information for you. I couldn't draw a picture of it or of this person, but I definitely know it when I see it. There are the physical attributes that I personally find attractive. You have your list as well. But then there's that indescribable mood or feeling. It's not limited to actual French people wearing period clothes from the 1960s. It could be anyone from anywhere. The best mottos are the ones that leave room for interpretation. One of my favorite authors is Karen Blixen. One of the two mottos she used in her life was, Be bold, be bold, be not so bold. It's brilliantly simple and poignant, but it also provides a lot of room for maneuvering, which is why I think... Live life like a French film works in the same way. So, I guess it's time for me to wander the streets with a moody pout and spectacular sunglasses and find someone to flirt with in a cafe. Au revoir, mes amis. Number 38. Red lipstick and nail polish. I have always loved red lipstick and red nail polish. Since it has never looked good on me personally, I tend to like it on other people. A female friend of mine is convinced that it's because I watched too many French films growing up, and living in France certainly didn't help. 
It's so simple and subtle. No need for anything else. I would have certainly been an early supporter of the suffragette movement had I lived in that era, as they embraced red lipstick as a symbol of their struggle. Had I been wealthy in ancient Egypt, I would have been in my element, since it was a sign of social status for men and women alike. To be honest, as a fan of red lipstick, I would have fit right in in ancient cultures as diverse as Sumeria, Minoa, Indian, China, and indigenous Australia. It's been around for five millennia. Yeah, oh, damn. I actually ended up researching the history. I had really promised myself that I wouldn't, that I would just leave it alone on the aesthetic level. Number 39, the scent of burned orange peels. I made the decision not to include individuals on this list because it would take up too many of the spots. But this Pandora's box I'm opening in my head has been making it difficult to narrow certain things down. I've covered a couple of topics regarding the sense of smell, that most powerful of our senses. But I didn't say to myself that I had to include one specific aroma that I'll miss when I'm dead in order to cover that base. When I think about it, however, one specific aroma was a no-brainer, the smell of burnt orange peels. Like so many other sensory memories, it has its roots in childhood. We had an electric stove when I grew up, and during the winter months, my mother would dry orange peels and then slowly let them burn on the rings of the stove. She told me that this was a trick she learned from her mother. It was a simple and effective way to eliminate the smell of tobacco from a home during the months where the doors and windows needed to be closed, and from a time when everyone smoked everywhere. It is a clearly defined olfactory memory, but one that went lost for a couple of decades. I'm not exactly sure when it returned to my head, but I do know that it hasn't gone anywhere since. For six months of the year, my windows are always open until the very last moment, when the temperature drops too much to make it comfortable in my home. And then it's time to employ the glass dish of dried orange peels on the kitchen windowsill. They've been sitting there waiting for months. I place some bits of them on my gas stove, fire up the flame, and watch them ignite. It only takes a few seconds, and then I turn off the burner and fan out the flames on the orange peel until only a column of smoke is left, the visible incarnation of the scent. Every single time, it not only makes me think of my mom, but it sends me back in a sensory time machine to an undefined point in my childhood. I air out my apartment regularly during the winter, but sometimes it smells a bit lived in. Not least because I have teenagers. So on occasion, I will grab a small piece of dried peel from the stove that is still smoking slightly and walk around the apartment, waving it around like a religious dude performing a ceremony. When I do it before I go out to run an errand, for example, and it's the first aroma that greets me when I return home, it feels like I'm walking back into my childhood home after playing with my friends and I'm coming home for dinner. It's not a massive memory event. It doesn't cause me to dig out photo albums and spend hours poring over the photographic imagery to support my olfactory sensation. It is brief, but nonetheless, incredibly poignant. A couple of years ago, I came home and found my son in the process of burning orange peels on the stove. I had told him about it, but had never seen him do it before. So I asked him, well, why are you doing that? And he replied, I like the smell, and it makes me think of Grandma. He only ever met her when he was three years old. I passed on a memory of something that he never experienced in its original form, from a time decades before he existed. I like that. I like how a specific aroma, invisible and untouchable, is something that can be inherited and shared. Number 40. Photography 
Apart from cinema, photography is the art form that has always appealed to me the most. I'll always choose to see a photography exhibition first, if there's one around. When I'm traveling for work to other cities, I'll check to see if there's a cool exhibition in town while I'm there. I like to think what it must have been like when photography was invented. For centuries, the primary art forms were paintings and, I guess, sculptures. That was all you had if you wanted to be amazed at how an artist could interpret a portrait of a person, or anything else. Then along came the technology that enabled us to record moments in time in the life of a person, or a city, or nature, in a fraction of a second. What a wild technological development. It must have been mind-blowing to see the first photographs. A street that you know well, captured forever with a little machine, let alone a person. I have a photo on my computer of the first portrait of a person taken in the United States, and the second ever in the world. It is also the first selfie. The photographer, Robert Cornelius, just stares back at you from 1839, staring into the future of the art form. I just stared at that photo for a good few minutes while writing this text. The photographs of city streets, which were among the first ever recorded, are interesting, but it is the photographs of people from the very early days of photography that are, for me, most poignant. I have one book that I read once a year, and have done so for maybe 20 years. It is quite simply the most dog-eared book I own. The spine was cracked long ago. Many of the pages are loose, but it is quite simply one of the most important books in my creative life. Susan Sontag's On Photography Sontag waxes all poetic and analytical about the art form, and it is a constant source of inspiration. Not only for my love of photography, but also just the creation of art. It covers the history of the art form, but also its relevance to us as humans. When I was doing a lot of traveling in exotic and remote locations, I always had a camera with me. This was in the days before digital photography, so a lot of thought had to go into every photograph. I noticed many years ago that I had a problem with deciding whether or not to photograph in color or black and white. It really is two different ways of looking at the world. I would see something and think, oh, that is perfect in black and white. And then I would be frustrated that I only had color film in my camera. The opposite would happen if I had black and white film in the camera and saw something that could only be recorded in color. I was endlessly fascinated at this ability to see the world in two different ways. On some of my later journeys, I ended up bringing two cameras with me. One was loaded with color film, the other with black and white. So my creative photographic eye was always covered. Now, of course, it's easier with digital. There's no decision-making necessary. But I'll still experience seeing something and thinking, that will be black and white. And when I look through the viewfinder, that's what my brain sees. When I'm editing the photos later, all taken in color, I will sometimes remove the saturation to see what it looks like in black and white. Sometimes it works, and other times it just feels wrong. Some of the photography that I'm most interested in is press photography, and the World Press Photography Exhibition each year is high on my list of things to see. It's current affairs, it's real life, and it shows us in one frozen frame what is happening in a faraway place. Even with the ease that we can record live action, these still photographs are, for me, much more powerful. This applies to football as well. An hour after the match, you can see all the highlights on YouTube or somewhere else on the internet. But I still love that there are still photographers with their long lenses on the sidelines, capturing moments of drama in a way that live action never can. In my personal life, photography has a therapeutic function. Of course, I love my children, but there are times when you are human and you don't get along. 
Interestingly, I've noticed a pattern with my kids. I'll be at odds with one of them, but rarely with both of them at the same time. Anyway, I noticed that when I was looking at photos of them as babies or when they were young, I would get all warm and fuzzy and sentimental. So I took a few hundred photos of my kids and loaded them onto an old tablet. It's hanging on the wall between the kitchen and the dining room right now. In the periods where there is less family harmony than normal, I'll turn it on, and the photos scroll past in a slideshow. It literally helps me get over my frustration or anger with whatever kid I'm at odds with that day. And they both stop and look when the slideshow is rolling. Oh, I remember that we were on holiday there, or we were doing that. Or sometimes things like, hey, where was that, or how old was I there? It's really a cool parenting pro tip. Photography is a glue to keep people together. Although it doesn't really work that well with ex-girlfriends, I've discovered. But hey, it's not news that it's easier than ever before to take photographs. I often wonder how many photographs are taken that nobody ever sees. My smartphone is certainly filled with them. When I take photos on it, they are always uploaded to my place in the cloud. So even when I delete from my phone, I know that there's a growing ocean of photos in a folder that will take weeks or months to sort through at some point in my life. It's kind of wild that even though almost everyone on the planet can take photos at any given moment, the art of photography hasn't really been watered down. We're bombarded with images on social media, but we still seek them out, and we still react to them. I'm not a fan of looking at people's food, and I don't really understand the fascination with it, but the fascination is there, and many people enjoy it. Two centuries ago, people would be amazed at a painting of a fruit bowl. Now, we look at sourdough bread. But we look. It's as though photography has fit in perfectly with every era of human society since it was invented. The brevity of looking at a photograph, registering the subject, reacting to the motif, certainly seems to fit our fast-paced modern media world. It's a whole different investment to start a new series on Netflix or to fall down a rabbit hole on YouTube. I am skeptical about our exaggerated use of social media, but the ones that involve photography, I seem to think that they're kind of okay. Although the famous quote by French photographer Henri Cartier-Bresson, your first 10,000 photographs are your worst, may not ring true any longer. Back then, it was 10,000 carefully thought-out photographs shot on film. Now most of us have 10,000 photos on our phone, and most are shit. I can't imagine my life without photography, either taking photographs or regarding them. Even if I'm just popping down to the supermarket, which is only 100 meters away, to buy some milk, I will be irritated if I discover I forgot my phone at home, because I might see something that I want to record as a still image. You never know what might show up in the never-ending flow of life, which is an excellent segue into... Number 41, street photography. I can't decide if it's a natural symbiosis or a tug of war, this codependency between physical movement and the creation of art, such as dance, playing musical instruments, painting, or photography. It's probably best that it might be both. With street photography, the idea and the subject do not pre-exist. The process begins when the subject emerges, and it starts with my eye recognizing the potential for a photograph. This time frame can vary from several seconds down to a fragment of a second. Once spotted, a signal is sent through my brain's mainframe to the outer extremities of my right arm. My eye is still analyzing, judging speed, light, distance, continuously determining if the subject remains worthy of being recorded, and, most importantly, whether or not I have time to take the shot. Through years of experience and muscle memory married to the blind knowledge of the camera, I know that a complex series of movements combining my bones, tendons, and musculature is underway. 
It is fluid and smooth as my arm reaches back to grip the house of my camera resting against the small of my back, at a spot somewhere between my dorsum and my lumbar. In the very same moment, three of my fingers and my thumb find the grip. My index finger is resting on the shutter release button. At that moment, it feels like all the tension and energy in the creative world is concentrated right there, ready to explode. And I'm only 30% into this process. Then comes the tension as my entire arm and shoulder guide the camera first forward past the belt line and then up, rising to the occasion. Art is imminent. Something never before seen in the history of humankind is about to be recorded. My adrenaline production boosts in a flash. I'm excited. The movement of my arm, because I've done it countless times, feels robotic. And that is comforting because precision is of the essence. I put my full faith in it. I register an incredibly brief moment of panic, a minute passage of time, like a visual solar eclipse, as the house moves across the face and my eye loses sight of the subject, until it reappears, thankfully and invariably, in the viewfinder. I have learned that I exhale at the last moment and hold my breath as my index finger hammers out a staccato beat on the shutter release button as I find my point of focus, until I reach the point of no return and the shutter is released. With few exceptions, I take three shots before the tension ebbs away and my arm leads the camera down and away from my face and around my body to rest against the small of my back once again. My breathing resumes. The muscles around my eyes loosen and expand their range once again. I never need to look at the screen. I know instinctively if I got the shot that I wanted. This entire process lasts less than three seconds. It is absolutely the photograph that means everything. There is nothing else. But this tag-along physical process is exhilarating. I knew nothing of this process until other people started noticing it and commenting on it, forcing me to analyze. Why do you always take three shots? Huh, do I? I spent a decade taking over 20,000 photos of people cycling in cities. And I suppose I subconsciously determined that with three evenly spaced shots, I get three variations on the position of the cyclist's legs. One of them will always look best. You should really remember to breathe, said a model to me in a studio shoot. Holding your breath for three seconds is no great feat, but when shooting a static sitting subject, it doesn't serve much of a function and I end up gasping for breath. What I won't miss is the feeling I get when I miss a shot, when I spotted it way too late to get a shot off or an obstacle came in the way. I can spend days lamenting the shots that I missed. You've been listening to 100 Things I'll Miss When I'm Dead. If you like what you're hearing, slap some shiny stars on the rating on iTunes. And you can buy me a coffee. Check out how over at buymeacoffee.com slash Michael. M-I-K-A-E-L. I'm Michael Koval-Anderson. Catch you next time, and thanks for listening.